Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. Today is January 24th, 2023. It's 3 p.m. and this is episode number 20. Four topics today will move from current events to sort of more slightly more theoretical discussions. Uh, the first is PPI, which stands for Producer Price Index. It's interesting, most people focus on CPI, the Consumer Price Index, but in the PPI is effectively the wholesale version of that. And it's also very, very important. And it has a tendency to anticipate movements in CPI for, for logical and, and obvious reasons. What the PPI did in December was nothing short of remarkable and very positive for the war against inflation, let's say. Because the PPI, it wasn't that its rate of acceleration slowed down as has been happening with the CPI. The PPI actually dropped by half a percent in December. And that's actually quite remarkable. And in fact, the, uh, the, PPI, the PPI itself was divided into two halves the roughly halves, the services sector and the goods sector. And over time, the services sector has become larger than the goods sector. It's not hugely larger now, but it is. So in December, the goods sector, the goods portion of the PPI actually fell by 1.6%. So an amazing drop. It hasn't dropped anything like that for, uh, for over a year. So very, very powerful move, very strong move, and it bodes well for controlling inflation. On an annual basis, however, it was up 6.2%. But I want to read you since June of this year, which was a bit of a peak. It was bouncing around 11-something, March, April, May, and June. In June, it was 11.2. So I'm just going to read the months since June, what the annual increase has been in the PPI. So it's 11.2 in June, 9.7, 8.7, 8.5, 8.2. So you can see it dropped in July, but August, September, October, fairly steady, dropping within the eights. But then November 7.3, so down 0.9. And in December 6.2, so down 1.1. Uh, huge increases in the amount by which it dropped, if you will, or it's dropping by more and more each month. So it be, seems pretty clear to me that we're going to see a five handle in January. And then we start getting within, call it spitting distance, of what the Fed's target for CPI is, admittedly. So what this means to me is that after a period of dropping fairly slowly, like the PPI did, the CPI will start to drop uh, much more quickly. Uh, a nice bit of news and a bit surprising and something that really doesn't hit the, the, the headline nearly as often as CPI does. So there's our fiat news. Now let's change to a bit of crypto news. The fascinating, fascinating development, Bitslata, which was a crypto exchange that I never heard of at all, and no one that I know of had ever heard of it. Uh, its own history, I guess the upside of this is, hey, the world is growing smaller because it was a Hong Kong exchange, so Chinese, let's call it exchange, 100% owned by a Russian that transferred 
all sorts of, or, or, or converted all sorts of crypto into Russian rubles, of all things. The Russian was caught in Miami by a joint French, U.S., and Europol operation. And so now he's been arrested in the U.S. He's going to be tried in the U.S. for money, money laundering. And just like with regular money, crypto to some degree is used for to, to further criminal activities. The amazing thing here is that of the $2.1 billion that went through Bitslato, the estimate is that half of it was related to criminal activities. And the interesting thing is people didn't use the exchange to convert Bitcoin, you know, ETH, Litecoin, et cetera, into U.S. dollars or euros, specifically to convert it into Russian rubles. So that tells you a lot about uh, what in general it was being used for because uh, the level of criminal activity is much higher in Russia than it is in most places. But also, uh, it's probably, and I haven't seen anything specifically about this, but I would guess that it's also directly or at, at most, or at least indirectly, related to uh, the sanctions against Russia because of its invasion of and war on the, the Ukraine. So something that not, uh, again, it hasn't made a huge amount of media. On the one hand, it's sort of what they would call a titillating story. But on the other, it's not all that big a deal because it wasn't that big, an ex a big of an exchange. I know of nobody who even heard of it, much less used it. So um, it, was, uh, it, it was a story that draw, drew attention, uh, more attention than substance, I would say. The third topic of the four is... Something I was explaining to my CFO in the family office today, and that is how the, the importance of the of uh, the four thousand level in the S and P and the S and P five hundred has it seems to me become more important than usual. Uh, the the S and P, you know, you can trade it with options. You can't; it's not a single stock, obviously, so you can't trade it there. You can trade proxies like the Qs and various things. But the 4,000 level or any level of the S&P is not something you really trade like, oh, hey, uh, you know, uh, Tesla is down to back down to 400. It's time to buy or something, buy a dip. And when people look at the S&P, they don't say, oh, the S&P is up to 4,100. Let me sell my, my Amazon stock or something like that. But that is actually starting to happen now. We've been Stuck around 4,000 for a long time. In December, we were a little bit above. Most of January till now, we're a little bit below. Now we put our nose above uh, 4,000 again. And it really seems to me like we're seeing some classic TA resistance and support right around 4,000. There's a real battle uh, that's going on. Uh, and because of the, of the issues that, you know, some of the challenges in the economy right now, and because the interest rate effect is still percolating through the economy, uh, I don't. I see it more as resistance than support at this point in time. I suspect that will flip, but probably not until late Q3 of this year. But it's interesting because the S&P, a given level of the S&P has been almost more academic knowledge for the vast majority of people. Uh, there are others for whom it's anything but academic. Uh, but for everyone now, I think it's become uh, more symbolic. I don't see that as a long-term or secular trend by any means. It's just an interesting data point that's happening now. So I guess we're alternating crypto fiat today or fiat crypto more precisely. So the fourth and last point is just a brief one that's informational. 
which is DeFi versus CeFi. DeFi is something that's been a lot in the news recently, probably in the last year, maybe year and a half, and it simply means decentralized finance. CeFi then obviously is centralized finance, and in general, it's not entirely true, but the vast majority of people use CeFi to indicate fiat or the standard classic institutional financial system, and DeFi, it, 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 they use it, it means decentralized finance, but people often use it to mean a lot more. Some people even use it to, in a strange sort of way, refer to the entire crypto sector or, or to blockchain activities. And, and there's certainly a, a, a lot of overlap, but in a, in a Venn diagram, the DeFi circle would fit entirely within the crypto circle, and there would be quite a gap between the, the two circles. In terms of what they, what they really mean, I think one of the best ways to explain it is using frequent flyer miles versus uh, tokens, crypto tokens that you would earn for, say, doing a search or for uh, accepting, agreeing to have your personal data used on certain sites and things like that. So you would earn, you would earn tokens. But the difference is when you have frequent flyer miles, you fly with Delta, let's say, Delta sends the statements to you monthly. You can look it up on their app or whatever, and it's centralized. It's centralized. Delta keeps track of it. So DeFi is related to DLT, which is distributed ledger technology, as opposed to CLT, which is centralized ledger technology. So those frequent flyer miles are kept on a centralized ledger, which honestly is basically how virtually all accounting is done now. You have your, your master ledger, your general ledger in accounting, and really the crypto, as I've said many times before, the ledger is simply a list, but it's a decentralized list, so it really cannot be hacked. It's reliable. And centralized finance is finance like a traditional bank or frequent flyer miles where there's a centralized entity keeping track of it. Now, DeFi or decentralized finance First, the dirty little secret is DeFi isn't. I used to say the same thing about algo funds, algorithmic funds when I was running a, running a, a fund of funds. My phrase was algo isn't. Well, DeFi isn't, not really, or perhaps better to say not yet. There is always some aspect of DeFi that is centralized. Maybe one day we'll get to totally decentralized DeFi, but I'm not sure that's even possible or frankly desirable. Things go wrong. Look what happened to the New York Stock Exchange this morning, where 200 stocks plunged 20% more or less and then shot up 20% more or less. And now the New York Stock Exchange has, has decided to actually cancel most of the transactions that took place during that window. You know, people with stop losses or limit sell orders were ecstatic because they, well, the limit sells were ecstatic, the stop losses probably not so much. When it recovered, but some people made a lot of money on those big moves and other people lost a lot. Well, they're all going to be rolled back. And the only way that can be done, and it's, it's probably more fair than leaving it alone, but the, because it was a mistake. It was a computer error. It was a program error. So that's being un, unraveled. The idea of doing that in something that is completely decentralized is it's not impossible, but it's probably impossible to do it quickly. Because if it was totally decentralized and you did everything on a vote, first of all, some aspect of centralization has to be the person who initiates the vote, phrases how you're going, phrases the question, right? And if you look at election 
uh, specialists, they will tell you how, the fr- how you phrase a question can often determine, totally determine the answer. And so there's still elements of, of centralization. Nevertheless, uh, DeFi is much less centralized than CFI, and the ledger, is, instead of being kept in a set of books in one closed room somewhere, is kept on a blockchain. Everyone can examine it, and the, it, it, there are millions of copies of it, so it can't be falsified. And it, it's, an in, it's an interesting uh, concept because if you decentralize, if you, if you apply DeFi, then do you need all the licensing? Do you need all of the compliance and everything else that you need for CFI? And the, while the DeFi aficionados will tell you, oh, absolutely not, there's no central person or central organization that you can contact or that you can arrest or whatever, because they uh, haven't been licensed, that debate, although that's the claim, has clearly not yet been won. So to me, it'll be fascinating to see where DeFi ends up because there almost will, it's almost, there's almost certain to be some regulation of it, uh, but it's going to have to be a very different kind of regulation. In the U.S., the, the regulatory authorities, and particularly the SEC, have taken fiat-derived uh, or fiat legislation that has been passed in some cases in the 1930s and applied it to crypto without any change. Uh, tax authorities have done similar things, although the IRS has put out a couple clarifications. The Unless there's a real change and really sweeping legislation that will apply specifically to crypto and more specifically to DeFi, it's going to be very, very difficult to anticipate where the DeFi sector is going. In the meantime, it's partly because of the lack of regulation. It's the most innovative, and particularly since events like uh, Celsius and FTX, although in a way Celsius uh, was caused by DeFi. But with FTX, you've got a real migration away from centralized exchanges, CEXs or SEXs, to DEXs, DEXs, or decentralized exchanges for the same reason. Uh, but also because you keep control of your assets when you, when you trade on a decentralized exchange. And in the interesting case with Celsius, as I mentioned last uh, last episode, or maybe two episodes ago, a judge has recently ruled, you know, not your keys, not your coins. And so the move to decentralized exchanges has gotten impetus from a whole bunch of different directions. And the reason I say Celsius was a bit DeFi is because it looked for yield on uh, DeFi protocols and DeFi platforms, even though the customer-facing piece of it was uh, fixed income. So you had you had Celsius paying out fixed income, but earning variable income, highly volatile variable income. And it doesn't take someone with an advanced finance or economics degree to realize that's a highly risky proposition. And when markets went down, yields drop and uh, they ran out of money because they had promised much higher yields than they were able to earn. So very, very brief, probably not as brief as I initially meant it to be, but it's a big topic, a very brief explanation of the distinction, let's say, between CFI and DeFi. And with that, my name is Tim Enneking. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we'll speak with you next week.